Hello, I'm Party Parslow, and this is Party in China. It's the story of my fascinating, frustrating, and very funny adventures teaching English in the Chinese provinces of Sichuan and Jiangsu. This is the truth, but it's not the whole truth because just too much happened, and it's not nothing but the truth. Because there are jokes and hearsay, conjecture and mistakes, and because half the time I was half drunk. This is episode four. Previously on Party in China, I'd arrived in Sichuan's capital Chengdu, sweltered in a summer heatwave, and undergone the most humiliating medical examination of my life. So it wasn't the heat; it was the humility that had me flustered when, upon setting eyes on me, my recruiter Belinda just stared, mouth agape, and said. Wow! Once Belinda recovered sufficiently from the shock and awe of seeing me in person, she invited me to lunch in a restaurant downstairs, where the waitress took away my chopsticks and gave me a spoon in a simultaneously thoughtful and insulting gesture. As I'd been involuntarily fasting for over twenty hours, I eagerly attacked everything put in front of me, which was a lot. Chinese hosts order far more than can be eaten as an act of hospitality, or perhaps self-aggrandizement. My appetite was temporarily stunned into submission when the dignified middle-aged woman at the next table hawked and gobbled on the carpet between our tables. But even that didn't stop me for long. Both Belinda and the waitress watched me eat the whole time, giving little oohs of surprise when I devoured something they thought I'd balk at. When my gluttony finally waned, I'd gone from not remembering the last time I'd eaten to doubting I'd ever have to eat again. I should have been wary of the gurgles and sloshes emanating from my belly, but at the time, I was content. After lunch, someone who wasn't Belinda,、uh, Vicky or Cindy or Candy or Grace or Joy or another young woman with a name chosen from a 60s sitcom, took me to open a bank account in nearby Tianfu Square, an impressive open space bordered by modern shops, official edifices. And unfortunate signs for McDonald's and Starbucks. A huge statue of Mao Zedong holds his right arm out imperiously in what could be a Nazi salute, but in my jet-lagged state, I thought he was pointing right at me, and suffered my first overwhelming moment—the first of many, many times I'd think, "Jesus, I'm in China." Becoming aware that gorging myself on hot, strange, and spicy foods on an entirely empty stomach was having unpleasant repercussions further down the digestive tract, I excused myself and found the toilet, but found the toilet too repulsive to enter. It was Chinese-style, just a hole in the floor, and had either a recently housed a troop of dysentery-ridden baboons, or b shit hurling had been declared an Olympic event. The shit put, maybe. And it looked like the athletes training there were headed for Rio. I resolved to hold it in until back in my room at Sam's. My tiny, grotty toilet now seemed like the peacock throne. I'd expected to stay in Chengdu for a couple of days to acclimatize and sightsee. Chengdu is world famous for the panda sanctuaries, street markets, and fabulous restaurants. But now I was told that I'd be departing immediately to Diyang, a small city of only five million people. As Blinder explained, Australia's largest city has five million people. Accompanying me to Diyang would be Nancy, the only one there who seemed to actively dislike me. Blinder noted the flash of concern on my face, but I lied that it was because I'd missed dinner with her, rather than because I thought I might crap my pants on the bus. Outside Sunnies, we flagged down a cab. 
and Nancy, tiny, tiny little Nancy, took the comparatively capacious front seat, leaving me to cram my considerable bulk, long legs and luggage into the back. It only took as long as shoving a bison into a phone box and neither Nancy nor the driver tried very hard to disguise their impatience. Eventually, I was sprawled across the back seat with my head behind the driver and my feet jammed between my backpack and the ceiling opposite. Nancy told me to close the back passenger door properly, but I couldn't reach it. So I opened the one behind my head, rolled out into the road, walked around the cab, slammed the passenger door, walked back out into the road and reversed the somersault for re-entry. The cab driver then reached out his window to slam that door into my head and we were finally away. North to Diang. Well, north to Chengdu North Bus Station, a squat, ugly building surrounded by tricycle rickshaws and taxis. At Sydney Airport, Singapore Airport, Tianjin Airport and Chengdu Airport, I'd had to dig through my backpack at every metal detector to prove my harmonica wasn't a weapon by playing a few jaunty notes. Now I found I had to do the same at Chinese bus and railway stations. Nancy's expression went from contempt to embarrassed rage, but it could have been worse. It could have been a banjo. Nancy bought some tickets and we boarded a small coach. She sat me down next to a window near the front and then moved as far away from me as possible to a seat up the back. I remember thinking I didn't blame her, I must stink after my long journey, but then remembered that I'd bathed and deodorised that morning. So I can only assume her concern was that I might play the harmonica again. The coach was cramped. I'm just too big for most Chinese situations. But the cramps in my belly were more of a worry. The noises from my guts were like the soundtrack to that David Attenborough doco with orcas eating baby seals. Gurgles, splashes, roars, moans. Nancy couldn't have abandoned me because of flatulence. I was far too scared to fart. My sphincter was at DEFCON 1. It's just over an hour from Chengdu to Diang, but I didn't know that at the time. So the intestinal torture seemed endless. Just when I thought I must give up, consequences be damned, we arrived and alighted into what was rapidly becoming normal, noisy chaos. I wasn't going to climb into the back of another cab, so just got into the front seat of the one closest to me, forcing Nancy to follow, muttering grumpily. She was still muttering grumpily when we stopped outside some apartments on a broad boulevard. Nancy paid the driver and we got out and stood there for a while. I asked why. She informed me that we were meeting Mr Wong at the school. I informed her that we weren't at the school. I helpfully pointed out the school, which was about a hundred yards away on the other side of the boulevard. I said I recognised it from the pictures on the website. Also, that it looked like a school, not a block of apartments. Plus, it said Diang Foreign Languages School in both English and Mandarin on the gates. Nancy wasn't impressed with my logic and said that the taxi driver knew what he was doing and wouldn't have taken us to the wrong place. As my gastric distress was once more nearing critical mass, I suggested she phone Mr Wong, which she reluctantly did. He told her we were in the wrong place, but that he'd come to us. Nancy didn't want to talk about it. After several more moments of bowel churning and sphincter clamping, a small dark man rode a small black bike through the school gates and across the wide road. Mr Wong was very friendly, very impressed with my size. 
held a lit cigarette in the corner of his mouth and kept poking me as if to check I wasn't wearing a Wookiee costume. He showed us around the school, acting the tour guide in his distinctive speaking style, full of confidence and unorthodox phrasing delivered loudly with unexpected pronunciations. He spoke of the school buildings, the trees, the sports oval, the outdoor ping pong tables, the library, the canteen, but at no stage did I hear the word toilet. When we came to the rear gate of the school, Mr Wong made the guards scrutinise me carefully, although I'm not sure how he thought anyone could forget the only 6 foot 1 inch 270 pound bespectacled hairy Irish Australian in the city. Across the road, a gated and guarded apartment complex takes up the whole block. Mr Wong explained that this was to be my new home and that there were three apartments for me to choose between, but I'd already decided I was taking the first one with a working bathroom. Preferably a working Western-style bathroom, but I was nearly desperate enough to squat. As soon as I spied a proper toilet in the first apartment, I pushed Nancy and Mr Wong out the front door amid a flurry of confused protest and sprinted to the bathroom, unbuckling as I ran, my socks slip-sliding away on the shiny, polished floor. As I thankfully, loudly and stenchfully christened my new home, I saw that someone had thoughtfully provided the housewarming gift of a brand new roll of toilet paper. Things were finally looking up. During my Skype interviews with Belinda, she told me that she couldn't show me any photos of the apartment because it was being renovated, which made no sense to me, but now I believed her as everything was brand new, the kitchen unused, the two bedroom doors still wrapped in the plastic they were delivered in. Both bathrooms had showers, but no curtain or glass enclosure, so the entire room got wet every day. I showered in the Chinese toilet, as the hole in the floor made for excellent drainage. Plus, it kept the toilet paper dry in the Western one. The tiles featured an ethereal woman, or a drag queen, judging by the size of the hands, and the slogan, Digital Dream Utopia. I don't know what it means either. When I moved in, the western toilet didn't flush and there was no hot water, but a plumber soon fixed the first and I was taught how to light the gas several minutes before I wanted to shower or to do the washing up. You turned on the gas flow and pressed the button which ignited the pilot flame. The trick was to ensure the pilot flame was actually lit, as if it didn't and you tried it again a minute or two later, the resultant explosion deafened you and singed all the hair off one side of your head. Ever the educator, I turned the first time it happened into a teaching opportunity and taught my neighbours the English expression, what the fuck was that? The two burner gas stove top had no oven and there was a twin tub washing machine which flooded the kitchen every wash. Deluged the entire apartment if I didn't remember to damn the doorway with a towel. So I mopped the floors a lot more often than I normally would. At first it was thought I had no need for a fridge but I caused a fuss and one arrived to keep the beer cold. Not that I'd found any decent beer yet. But there was no room in the kitchen, so it had to stand in the living room next to the TV because that was the only available PowerPoint. Both double beds were very low and uncomfortable. The built-in wardrobes had far too much space for my meagre possessions. Both the lounge and the main bedroom had bay windows, one with a boring view of the building across the alley, the other of a noisy construction site across the road. The L-shaped red lounge had large armrests and a matching divan next to the initially inoperative television. Built for people less than half my weight, the furniture started falling apart in a couple of weeks. 
That was about the same time that I noticed that the delicate yet ornate calligraphy on the living room light shade said, insert sample text here. <laughs> In our next episode, Mr. Wong takes me on a tour of Diang during which stunned locals react badly to having a giant walk among them. And I'm physically assaulted by an elderly passerby. That and much, much more next time on Party in China. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>